Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talk with a Doc, the show where we bring common questions to medical experts for insight and information. I'm Sandra Brown, a board-certified, licensed genetic counselor and regional genetics program manager for Providence Southern California. Joining me today is Dylan Vandenberg, also a board-certified licensed genetic counselor for Southern California. This is the third of our four-part series on genetics and genomics programs at Providence Orange County, Mission Hospital in Mission Viejo, St. Joseph Hospital in Orange, and St. Jude Medical Center in Fullerton. Today, we want to discuss the different types of genetic tests and what they each mean for you. So let's get started. Hello, Dylan. It's great to speak with you today on this interesting and important topic. It's great to be here. Thank you for, for having me. Uh, let's first introduce ourselves. Uh, please tell us a little bit more about yourself and your work with Providence. I am a licensed and certified genetic counselor, um, which means that I, I practice and provide counseling services to patients here in Orange County. Uh, I work kind of at the Mission Hospital site, which is in Mission Viejo, South Orange County, but I also work and coordinate programs at the St. Joseph location in Orange. I am the pathology screening program lead, which means I help coordinate a lot of our pathology and molecular screening program across the region um, and lead the program in different directions going forward. But I've, I, even though I've been a genetic counselor with Providence for about two years, it really feels like a lot longer because I was a volunteer here however many years ago that was. I don't want to age myself too far right <laughs> now. Um, but then I was also a student of here and a uh, uh, You've always been a mentor to me, Sandy, so it's great to be here. Thank you. I'm so glad that you've had so much um, experience with us at Providence and that we've been able to keep you here as one of our lead genetic counselors providing really important programmatic support. Um, so I think that's one of the things we could talk about, and, and I guess I could um, introduce a little bit about myself. Um, I am also a licensed genetic counselor, and I've been working here at St. Joe's, um, St. Joseph Health and Providence for 11 years. And my primary role now is to um, help support and design um, alternative service deliveries in order to increase our patient identification and more widely serve our populations um, so that we can really take care of our communities in making sure that we're identifying patients at high risk. And so like you, I, you know, Dylan and I have known each other for a long time. We really feel a, a lot of passion around um, delivering uh, important uh, genetic services and identifying patients at high risk at all of our locations. So when you think about uh, genetic testing and delivering uh, genetic services to our communities, when can a patient really expect to interact with a genetic counselor? Is it is it really only when genetic testing is performed or can you really talk about how we've developed our genetic services so that patients may not even know that a genetic counselor is part of their care? You know, I think people tend to think that genetic counselors are here to just order genetic testing, but it's so much more than that. Um, we are here at the identification stage when we're notifying patients that genetic testing or services may be an option, but we're really experts in genetic information. And so we can help a patient who is thinking about getting genetic testing. We can help a patient who has done genetic testing but would like additional genetic testing. We're helping patients who 
have already have results, but they need to talk to someone about the results to understand what it means for them or for their family. And really within Providence, we have so many different programs that interact with people at so many different stages of their life and in their care that really genetic counselors can interact with people in lots of different ways. And it's it's not just the typical, I want genetic testing, so I should see a genetic counselor model. Not that that isn't still an option for many people, but it is very personalized. And we try to make it such um, with the way genetics is evolving, personalized medicine is so important. And really being able to meet a patient where they're at currently is the best way to provide care in my mind. And we really think about genetic testing as a tool that help, helps us to obtain additional information about the patient's risk so that the patient's family history, the patient's personal history, and their genetic testing itself, their genetic test results itself, is all part and parcel of understanding a patient's risk of developing cancer um, or developing other, other um, diseases. And so I think part of it is that the genetic counselors are the genetic experts at our sites and provide screening as well as support to our physicians, um, our members of our case conferences so that the genetic counselors are always present during um, case discussions so that it's a, kind of a wide um, role to make sure that all patients are being considered um, for genetic um, services. Absolutely. I completely agree. And then when we talk about genetic testing, I think one of the main goals of this podcast was for us to really differentiate the different types of genetic testing. And, and you did go over a few things around, um, you know, does the patient want to just consider having genetic testing and maybe not have it yet? Um, or maybe it's something that their relative should consider. Maybe their relative would be more informative to have testing. Or maybe the, the patient had genetic testing five years ago and it's time for them to have their testing updated. So let's talk about what we're talking about when we mentioned that we're going to recommend genetic testing or that we're going to review or even interpret a patient's genetic test results. The, first off, there are genetic tests that come in all shapes and sizes, and it really depends on what someone needs. Well, what, how can we meet them where they're at and decide which genetic test is right for you at this stage in your life? Or is there someone in your family, like you said, who should be getting genetic testing instead? But really, it, it's so varied and so personalized, um, all the genetic testing options we have. And it's, like you said, a tool to gather more genetic information that we may not necessarily have available just based off of our own medical and family history. But there are these national guidelines, and it depends on, on what someone's personal family history might be. But there are cases where people may be medically advised or recommended to get genetic testing because there is a suggestive history in their own past or in their family, and they meet what's called a criteria for recommending genetic testing. And Part of what we do here in Providence is helping people figure out if they meet these criteria. If you know their history and their family is suggestive enough that says, you know, we really think this is a, a medically important test for you, and we really think that this could help provide some additional genetic information to you and your family. Um, so these criteria are quite complex and constantly evolving, and that's really where these different programs we have come in to identify people at the stage where. They don't. They aren't aware that this is something that's available to them, or they aren't aware that you know genetic testing is a, a medically advised test for them. So, mm -hmm. we're really trying to meet people where they're at, but we're trying to do an excellent job of identifying all people who 
meets these criteria, meets these guidelines. Not to say that anyone who meets the criteria or doesn't meet the criteria can't get genetic testing. <laughs> right. We really want this to be a service for everyone, um, but there are definitely some people we advise more strongly. Sure. And some patients, um, maybe they don't quite meet a criteria. Mm -hmm. um, maybe they don't know much about their family history or they could be adopted and really know nothing about their family history. So there's all kinds of examples of when um, a person may not meet an obvious standard criteria, but would still choose to have genetic testing and would still want to talk to a genetic counselor about what does their genetic testing really mean to them um, as part of their um, full understanding of what they know or don't know about their family history and what their current age is and any current diagnosis that they have. But let's um, really just focus a little bit because we're talking very broadly. Um, and genetics um, really can be, you know, looking at your entire genome of your body and looking at any kind of risks that you have for all sorts of diseases. But let's just focus a little bit on cancer. So if we just look at cancer um, as a risk, some people don't have cancer, but they have family history, so they have risk. Their risk may be higher than the average patient or average person who doesn't have family history. Let's just talk about how cancer is itself a genetic condition, but that not all cancer is hereditary. And then what kind of genetic tests we use to help patients understand whether or not their family history or their diagnosis of cancer is due to a hereditary cause. That's a great point. I'd like to reiterate that again. You know, all cancer is genetic, but not all cancer is hereditary. And I, I, I know how that sounds. It can sound a little complicated. So let's, let's dive in. Cancer is disease that happens because of these errors that essentially accumulate within our cells of our body. And if you recall, the cells of our body are essentially small little compartments that when put together can form the different organs that we're made of. So our lung is composed of lung cells. Our brain is composed of these brain cells, for instance. And inside all of these cells is our genetic code, our DNA, like a library of information. And when we think about what a gene is, it's really, like a book on a bookshelf sitting within our library with information ready to be interpreted by our body when it needs it. And some of these books um, provide very specific instructions that help in, in a sort of way of preventing these cells from going awry, preventing these cells from forming into a tumor or a cancer. So we really have internal instructions that help in a way to help prevent cancer for us. Now, when someone has developed a cancer or has developed a tumor, early in that process, what happened is some of these instruction manuals, some of these genes acquired some errors. And it's these errors that have built up over time that have led to this formation of a tumor. So all cancers and all tumors that form have genetic errors in them, what we call mutations. They all have genetic mutations. So that's what we say. When all cancer is genetic, we're, we're being crew. Um, all cancer has genetic errors. But occasionally, and this is where the hereditary part comes in, some people don't develop these errors uh, over time throughout their life. They're born with one. And so if you're born with one of these errors already, then it's you're, you're kind of one step closer to a cancer or tumor forming. And that's what can really cause uh, an increased chance for cancer throughout someone's life. And where this what we call germline testing really comes in and genetic testing really comes in to identify people who have this higher risk just based off of what's going on in these genes. 
Let's break that down. I think it is a really complex illustration to understand that all cancers are genetic and that all cells include our DNA and that all of our DNA within our cells, part of their role is to help our cells to behave normally. And that as we age, or perhaps we have exposures like exposure to cigarette smoking um, or other exposures, that those kinds of um, jobs that our DNA is doing within our cells may develop um, mutations um, that prevent the work of that cell from being done. So that a mutation can prevent our DNA from protecting our cells. And when that happens, it's more likely for those cells to develop cancer. Typically, that occurs due to aging. However, if you're born with one of those mutations, if that job of that cell is already somewhat compromised because of something in the germline, which is the inherited parts of your DNA, um, already is predisposing you to have less of that protective um, work that your cell is normally doing to prevent cancer, to help your cells behave normally, then a person that is born with an inherited mutation or an inherited predisposition to develop cancer is going to be more likely to develop cancer and is going to be more likely to develop more than one type of cancer and typically at earlier ages. Absolutely. That's why it's so important that we identify if someone has this inherited risk. Now, there are lots of different types of genetic tests that a cancer patient might undergo. And so I think it can get a little complicated when we talk about genetic testing as a whole, unless we break down what are these different types of genetic tests that I might receive during my cancer treatment. So you mentioned the, the word germline, and this refers to the inherited type of genetic testing. What we're looking at really here is what is my genetic risk? What is the, the underlying maybe genetic predisposition, people might know that term. What is my underlying predisposition to cancer? Why, why does there this strong family history or why did I develop cancer early in life? So germline testing is really helped or designed to identify something that is hereditary, something that increases risk, something that it provides us predictive and insightful information of what might be in someone's future or what might be passed down to their children or to their nieces, their nephews, their cousins, and help better understand what's causing cancer in a family, for instance. So some people get germline genetic testing, um, and some people get what's called somatic genetic testing. The word somatic just refers to the body, but it doesn't necessarily refer to what is inherited. A somatic genetic test can be done in a couple different ways, but the real goal of it is to look at the cancer itself, at the tumor itself or the cancer cells, wherever they may be, to figure out how is this cancer behaving? How is it interacting with our body? And thus, how can we target this cancer with treatments? How can we monitor this cancer over time? Or in some cases, how can we even detect the cancer? So germline testing focuses on looking for inherited risk, and our somatic testing focuses on you know, helping with treatment, helping with monitoring of cancer or screening for cancer. So maybe you can tell us more about some of the different types of somatic tests people might undergo in their cancer treatment. 
Sure. I think it's really important to understand the difference. When you look at somatic testing, that test is testing that's done on a biopsy. So if you have, um, you know, had a cancer and the tumor was surgically removed or was biopsied in order to determine if that was cancer, then that tissue itself is really valuable. It has all the genetic information in it. Um, but it also includes the genetic information that may be driving the behavior of the cancer. So being able to look at the somatic um, uh, aspect of the genetics of that tumor is really important. So what happens is that tissue itself, so the tissue from the biopsy or the tissue from the surgery um, will be sent to a special genetic laboratory where the um, the genetic information will be analyzed. Um, that's typically called next generation sequencing. And there's typically many hundreds of genes that will be analyzed in that case. Then your physician will receive a copy of that somatic test result. It's often called um, tumor profiling, tumor genomics. Um, these are the kinds of tests where the um, medical oncologist is looking at the overall genomic profile of the tumor tissue to see if there's something that can be identified as a driver of the cancer that would tell us things about how the cancer is behaving. Um, it can tell us things about prognosis. It can tell us things about aggression. Um, it can also tell us things about potentially the Achilles heel or the susceptibility of that cancer to respond to certain targeted therapies or treatments. Um, so it can tell us a lot of information. And like you said, it's really primarily designed to help a medical oncologist to understand more about the overall characteristics of a cancer and, and how it might behave. Very well said. And I think it helps to differentiate kind of how we get a germline test versus a somatic test. We mm -hmm. often utilize somatic tests um, focusing on getting tumor tissue or cancer cells, and we're analyzing those. A germline test for people who may have done this is often a blood or saliva test. So people were using a, a surrogate of your white blood cells circulating to analyze and interpret what was inherited and what was not. But then there are more complicated blurred lines because some people may have had a blood test to look for cancer within there. And so it can get a little complicated between that line, but there's something called liquid biopsy. And just like the name sounds, liquid, you know, analyzing a blood test, but biopsy, looking at tumor cells. We know that when people have a diagnosis of cancer, there can be small amounts of tumor DNA, essentially, from the cancer itself circulating in our own blood. This is a really fascinating discovery, but it thus allows us to go in and look at what might be, like you said, within the tumor somatically, what might be causing the tumor to behave in different ways, and thus act as both a screening test, but an ability to check for treatment response and to see how the tumor is you know, maybe being targeted or can be targeted over time. So liquid biopsy, even though it is a blood test, can give us somatic information, but there are blood tests that can give us germline information. So it can get a little complicated, but liquid biopsy right. is really I, new. When I think about how, how that's really different, when you look at the difference between a germline test result that's taking a blood, a blood draw um, or liquid biopsy that's also taking a blood draw, really the difference is in the type of cells that we're analyzing. Mm -hmm. So a germline test result or a germline test is always analyzing healthy cells. What we're really looking to see is 
do the do your healthy cells that you were born with that were passed down from your family do those healthy cells include a mutation um, that may predispose you to develop cancer and so we want to look at healthy cells because we want to actually read what's in the germline. We want to read what's in the egg and sperm. We want to read what's in the, you know, the original embryo. We want to read what's in the healthy cells. And you mentioned white blood cells. And so we often are looking at the DNA within white blood cells when we do a blood draw. When we're doing a liquid biopsy, that's not what we're looking for. We're not looking for healthy cells. We're looking for evidence that there are um, small fragments of tumor DNA floating around in the blood. So we're not looking for healthy cells at all. We're actually looking for evidence of cancer. And when you think about really liquid biopsy is a relatively new um, uh, kind of more cutting edge um, way of analyzing a patient's blood in order to identify uh, whether or not there are small fragments of DNA from a tumor. And it helps us to understand a few things. So uh, for example, when we're looking at a liquid biopsy, we could be looking at a patient who maybe they've been identified as high risk, high risk of developing cancer. Maybe they, we know, maybe we know they carry a mutation in an important gene that may predispose them to have a higher risk of developing cancer, uh, like the BRCA genes or like a Lynch syndrome genes. And maybe we could offer them a liquid biopsy so that we could see maybe uh, once a year or twice a year, um, look to see if they are developing cancer because what we're really looking for is um, evidence that's floating around in their blood that there is a cancer developing somewhere in their body. Most of the time right now, what liquid biopsy is used for is when the patient is known to have cancer, but maybe they can't have another surgery. Maybe they're not able to have um, a tissue biopsy. So we're going to use their blood in order to understand more about the cancer in the way that I was just talking about somatic testing, where usually you would use a piece of tissue in order to understand the DNA of a cancer sometimes that tissue is not available. And so we're gonna want to use the blood in order to find the evidence of the characteristics of that known cancer. And then there's another kind of developing form of a liquid biopsy where a patient could have completed their cancer um, treatment and have no evidence of disease. They're good to go. They've finished their treatment. Um, you know, they're ringing their bell to say, I I'm done with my cancer. I have no evidence of cancer. But we also still know that they have a chance that this cancer can come back. It can recur someday. And so how will we monitor them? Another way that liquid biopsies are being developed is called minimum residual disease. And what that liquid biopsy is used for is for a patient who's completed their cancer treatment and has no evidence of disease, but in order to keep them monitored for any possibility that this cancer could come back and recur during their lifetime, we could potentially use a blood draw, a liquid biopsy, just to see if there's any evidence that their cancer is recurring. So there's multiple ways that liquid biopsy is being developed to provide genetic evidence to a patient. I really think we're at the tip of the iceberg with liquid biopsy and the number of applications that will come out over the next several years is pretty excited to see how we continue to adapt it. And really touching on one of those parts, um, you mentioned utilizing it in kind of the early detection space, meaning as opposed to monitoring someone's cancer or helping understand the cancer, um, utilizing liquid biopsy 
in people who are high risk or average risk or may have some risk uh, to detect cancer early. We know that there are proven screening tests like mammograms and colonoscopies that work very effectively, but they're really just looking at very specific areas and because we know that these risk for breast cancer and colon cancer are much higher in the average population. But for people at higher risk and for risk of cancers that are not commonly screened for, sometimes liquid biopsy really has a, a role to help detect cancer early when it's at a stage where it's much more treatable and potentially curable. So I'm really excited to see where this goes. And it's it's interesting because if we think about this population, you know, what we really need to do well is find and identify people who have risk and have higher risk, whether that's contributed by a genetic test result or their family history, or even, you know, past exposure history or environmental factors. So Delivering personalized risk assessment is such an important part of the future of genetics, and helping identify people is at the, the crux of that. So, like I was saying, genetic testing is just a tool in, in this bank, but someone's true risk is determined by many different factors, and it's really such a personalized way to try to approach medicine by meeting people and identifying people who, and then stratifying people based off of their risk and offering them more targeted tests that fit their mold, as opposed to just offering the same test to every person rocking around in the country, right? Right. <laughs> well, and that just brings up when, when you're talking about using liquid biopsy for screening, which I really like to call liquid screening, because mm -hmm. uh, I think that makes it a little more clear what we're doing. Absolutely. There was a recent article about a fire department in Burbank, um, in California, providing the GRAIL gallery test, which is a form of liquid screening or a liquid biopsy that we've been utilizing through a research protocol that we have um, for our high-risk patients. Um, but in this case, there was a proactive measure to keep um, firefighters healthy because we know that according to the International Association of Firefighters, cancer is really one of the leading cause of line of duty deaths among firefighters. So they may view this type of screening, utilizing a liquid biopsy as a liquid screening test, as a way to really prioritize the health and well-being of our firefighters. So when you're talking about using liquid biopsy for high-risk patients, and you're talking about high-risk environmental um, causes of cancer, it really can be for everyone. Um, we're not there yet. We don't use a liquid biopsy or a liquid screening test yet um, for everyone, but I think we're going to be there within the next year or two, and it's great to be at Providence, a place where we have already been um, devising um, research protocols and improving our patient access to utilizing these kind of early um, developed liquid biopsy tests for just for screening, um, screening for the development of a cancer that would otherwise be unknown and may continue to um, develop and we would lose the opportunity to identify at an early stage. You know, everyone knows that early stage identification of cancer is the key to surviving cancer. And it's the key to having really a shorter treatment um, experience. And so if we can use these forms of liquid biopsy, liquid screening tests to screen for cancers of all types, um, especially like you're saying cancers that we do not have other methods of screening for. But um, another area of it that really comes to mind is utilizing liquid screening to potentially um, identify when a patient even needs a colonoscopy. 
So, I mean, getting a mammogram isn't that bad, but getting a colonoscopy can feel like a lot to do. Um, and imagine what it would be like if we can just provide liquid screening to a patient and that that liquid screening test could tell us whether or not the patient actually had a polyp developing in their colon and actually did need to have a colonoscopy. You know, these are the kinds of things that I think liquid screening are, are going to be um, developed and help us to really improve um, our patient access to um, the very highest um, risk analysis and the very highest ability for us to care for them in a, in a very personalized way. Absolutely. And I think we're going to see all different types of liquid screening coming out into the market and into our, our field over the next several years. We'll see already available liquid screens that are kind of multi-cancer, where they're looking at, you know, is there any signal of any type of cancer anywhere in this person's body? Is it in the pancreas? Is it in the kidney? And utilizing a blood test to pinpoint where that might be and then have further testing to confirm if that's truly cancer or not really can be the difference between someone um, you know getting through treatment or not so it's it's really quite exciting to be at this stage and obviously we still have a lot to learn and a lot that needs to be done um, but we're also going to just have so much growth in liquid screening including targeted liquid screenings you know we we often talk about some types of cancers that are you know very very difficult to screen for and often are diagnosed very late. These are cancers like pancreatic cancer and ovarian cancer where there really is an unmet need where maybe a liquid screening test that's targeted to this you know, organ or this part of the body really can be the difference in someone surviving cancer or not. And so you know, I've always said that an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. <laughs> and this is really where we, where we can be. You know, it's, it's, it takes so much effort to um, treat someone who has cancer, but that effort is so much reduced when we identify it early. Right. I mean, early detection and prevention is really where genetics sits. That's where we really want to be inviting patients to participate in their own personalized health care. We want patients to be able to achieve prevention if we can. But if we can't achieve prevention, then we need to achieve early detection. And like our um, pancreatic screening programs that we have at Providence, um, having a targeted liquid screening to, to identify whether or not a pancreatic cancer is developing is really an important step in being able to provide um, specific uh, cancer risk uh, screening. Absolutely. And, and it's, it's so interesting to see how the field is going to evolve over the next couple of years, because I see liquid screening being a huge part of these programs, not just for pancreatic cancer, but for all types of cancer, and really integrated along with imaging, along with all of our kind of standard technology to really pinpoint things at their earliest stages. And certainly until we get to a point where we can truly prevent the cancer from forming altogether, early detection is such an integral piece into how we take care of people and how we personalize and prevent disease and prevent suffering for people and their families. Yeah, I agree. So we've talked a lot about um, liquid screening. and We've talked a, a little bit about somatic testing where we're looking at um, the tumor analysis um, let's talk a little bit about your role in leading the pathology screening program. Can you tell us about the pathology screening program, how it works? Sure. So pathology screening program has been in place here for over 10 years, and it really started as, as a, a program to help oversee pathology reports and help ensure 
that the appropriate people who were recently diagnosed with cancer or a tumor, um, the people who meet that criteria we were referring to earlier, really came and received genetic services, whether that's genetic counseling, whether that's genetic testing, or whatever that might entail, um, helping people who may not realize it, but meet criteria to get into genetics, to get into this care and receive clinical care. Um, so as part of the pathology screening program, we do review uh, pathology reports at our institution on a weekly basis. And we're looking for evidence that there might be germline risk or genetic risk for this person who was newly diagnosed. And while you know the world is completely changing when someone has a new diagnosis of cancer, as genetics, we're, we're integral into that care. Sometimes there, the genetic testing can have an implication for upcoming surgery or may have an implication for their chemo or downstream treatment or may just be valuable to the family or to the person understanding their future risk. Mm -hmm. So we really try to meet people where they're at, but the pathology screening program's primary goal is to help identify people who otherwise wouldn't have been identified as having genetic risk and to help inform the doctors and inform patients so that the best care, the most personalized care is provided going forward. And it's the genetic counselors that are um, overseeing the pathology screening program at our site. Uh, and you are the lead for all of our um, locations. I think one of the things that's important um, to say is that the genetic counselors are the ones that are running the program. We run the reports from the pathology reports every week in order for us to read each pathology report. So very personalized care, reading each person's new pathology report in order to understand whether or not genetics is an important service for them to um, receive usually urgently when it's a new diagnosis of cancer. And so, you know, some of the things that are interesting that patients may not know or that individuals in our community may not know is some cancer types are an immediate referral and other cancer types need to have a little bit more um, information um, in order to, or a little bit more evidence in the personal or family history in order to meet a criteria to refer them to or recommend them to genetics. And so, you know, for example, as far as uh, an immediate um, referral that's independent of age, independent of family history, we know that all um, diagnoses of ovarian cancer, all diagnoses of pancreatic cancer, all diagnoses of aggressive prostate cancer, um, all meet that criteria. And I think one of the things that is important to us in providing this oversight is making sure that the patient is in um, is involved in understanding that they've been identified and also making sure that the physicians understand when a new indication for immediate recommendation to genetics has been established by the standards. I completely agree. It's so important that genetics have ownership of this program because like these criteria are constantly evolving. And as genetics is quickly adapting and changing, uh, really only people who work in medical genetics on a daily basis are gonna understand the nuance that we see mm -hmm. and the nuance of any case-by-case -case basis for any newly diagnosed person to really know how can genetics help this person and when should genetics be reaching out and when should things be recommended. Um, so it's really interesting to be able to have ownership of this and to be able to review these cases weekly and really see the immediate benefit that it has on the patients and the families of our community and within Providence. And now other cancer types, we actually look to see if there's additional evidence. 
uh, for example, uterine and colon cancers, we look to see if there's additional evidence that there could be a specific um, characteristic called mismatch repair um, that we can start to see by looking at some of the staining that our pathologists perform. Um, so if we see that that staining is showing us some loss of mismatch repair function, and maybe in a future pet podcast, we'll be able to go over some of what, what is mismatch repair. But it has to do with Lynch syndrome. And we can see Lynch syndrome when we look at some of the staining that our pathologists do. Um, at least we can see that there's evidence of Lynch syndrome. And we refer those patients or recommend them um, to genetics as well. Uh, other times, um, if there's not evidence of Lynch syndrome or for other types of cancer, maybe maybe melanoma, maybe breast cancer, it really depends on the age of the patient, um, if they have other cancers in their personal history, um, if they have colon polyps and what kind of polyps, you know, uh, what, how many relatives have had cancer and at what ages. So we really dive into not only the pathology report, but the total um, chart in order to understand whether or not this patient is being identified as meeting a standard criteria to have a recommendation for genetic services. You're right. It really is such a comprehensive dive into every individual case so that it's not, you know, just a quick scan of what's going on. It's really a deep dive to figure out, does this person really, do we really think they're going to medically benefit from genetic services and really help make determinations that we feel confident in and informing the patient and their doctors? And kind of building off of the mismatch repair discussion, there are also aspects to our pathology screening program that look at those somatic genetic test results. So as opposed to just looking at a pathology report, we might also look at any somatic genetic test that was done during the course of the patient's treatment or during the course of diagnosis to help see, you know, we're seeing these different mutations in the tumor, but this one looks different. You know, this one's standing out to us. Maybe it's, maybe it's actually what we call a germline mutation. Maybe it's actually hereditary. So as part of the pathology screening program, myself and the other genetic counselors, we're looking over these types of reports weekly basis too, both the, the tumor-based somatic genetic test results, but also the liquid biopsy-based somatic genetic test results. So that we can also identify people who may not have been identified based off their pathology report alone. Sometimes genetic mutations that are germline can hide and then mm -hmm. we don't always have all the information in their medical history or their family history or it's really you know a great additional layer that is provided by this program to ensure that we're capturing and not letting anyone slip through the cracks sure i mean a good example would be a patient with lungs lung cancer and we look at their molecular pathology report um, or their somatic um, genetic test result and we see that there's a brca mutation in their lung cancer and that may make us wonder is that brca mutation actually inherited is it actually a germline mutation and that patient would also be identified and recommended to have genetic services and a big reason for that is that BRCA mutations, when we see them in any kind of tumor, there are about 70% chance that those mutations are actually inherited. And so having that deep dive, not only into um, the patient's chart, but also looking at uh, any molecular evidence that has been um, requested by their physician helps us to understand more about what the molecular evidence may mean to the patient's personal risk of developing new cancers, maybe second or third primary cancers in their own lifetime, or may mean for their children or siblings or other relatives. 
we see so many examples of this because we, we talked about this criteria. The criteria is is really a great a way to identify people who have a higher probability to have a germline mutation, but it's by no means you know a diagnostic tool. You know, if you don't meet criteria, you can still have these mutations. If you do meet criteria, it doesn't mean you have a mutation. Right. So having all these different layers of evidence the pathology report, the personal history, the family history, the molecular result, the somatic result, all of it can be tied together by a genetic counselor. And really, this is where we are experts of genetic information. We are experts at putting this all together and, and piecing it together for a person and their family. So it's, it's really such a cool job that we have to be able to do all this and provide this clinically. Um, it's, it's wonderful. I'm happy we get to do this. Yeah, and it's it's funny because when we are talking about it, it's easy to realize how complicated it is and how difficult it would be um, to be a patient with or without cancer or with or without family history to really want to consider should they have genetic testing and if they have had genetic testing, what does it mean? How does it interpret it? And I think that's why having a team of genetic counselors not only providing um, support for our pathology screening programs and for our other programs, but also just being here, being available um, to answer questions and provide um, important information to patients to understand the difference between these different types of genetic tests, what they mean to each person, not only to the individual, but to the whole family is an, an, an essential element of providing excellent uh, genetic services. I couldn't agree more. And it's so wonderful to be the lead of a program that I think provides such excellent care to people. Because first off, you know, we are identifying anyone newly diagnosed across our, our cancer center, our system. So we are equitably identifying people at an early stage when we can provide them care and really be at the cutting edge of genetics. It's really so wonderful that we have this. We prevent people from falling through the cracks and we can very quickly triage them to the number of different ways they might get genetic testing, whether that's through the traditional method of meeting a genetic counselor, whether that's through our walking clinic, one of our special programs that is, uh, will be on another podcast episode, shout out to them. Um, and all of these different clinics and programs work together in tandem, you know, we're identifying, we're connecting, and then we're providing care. And it's really such a really unique system that we have here that you have helped create and really created. Um, so it's it's so wonderful to be a part of it. And I, I'm so happy that we reduce all these barriers for patients, that we really reduce costs, that we reduce suffering. We really do. All right. Well, I, I think this is a great conversation. And I think just our last um uh, probably a good comment for us to end with is who should have genetic testing when we're talking about all these different types of genetic testing. Can you uh, just kind of go over um, who should be really considering and thinking about having genetic testing or speaking with a genetic counselor? First off, anyone who is interested in genetic testing has the option for it. Anyone who walks through my doors is going to be offered genetic testing that might be helpful for them because I think anyone can benefit from having a discussion about genetic information and about risk. But there are certainly some people that are medically advised to get genetic testing and that's really where the pathology screening program can help identify people who are, you know, at a higher likelihood than the average person to have some whether it's a genetic syndrome that is elevating the risk for cancer or genetic risk to get cancer, you know, these criteria that we've mentioned, um, 
are really where we kind of medically advise testing. But I really want at some point in the future, genetic testing be, to be an option for all. And it really should be because mm -hmm. it is, again, a tool in the arsenal of a genetic counselor and in a person in their family to understand genetic information and how it applies to their risk and how it applies to their health and their well-being. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dylan. It was great to speak with you today. Thank you to all of our listeners for joining us today on Talk with a Doc. Please listen to all four of our genetic episodes in this series. We look forward to continuing the important conversation on health and wellness with more experts from Providence in future episodes. Please make sure to listen to all of our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission, programs, and services, go to providence.org. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening, and remember, at Providence, we see the life in you.